Hello and welcome to Fly With Your Shadow, the podcast all about music, mental health and illness and the mess that the COVID pandemic has made of all of it. I'm Jeff Robson and this show comes to you from my home in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. This is our fifth episode and I really want to thank everyone for listening and encouraging me so far. I really hope that you're enjoying the show and getting something out of it. I got a lot of positive feedback about our last episode featuring Nikki Maida of the Whalen Jennies. If you missed that episode, I hope you'll go back and give it a listen. In the interview, Nikki talked all about her successful music career and told us about how she's doing it all while managing a bipolar illness. She talked about how it was common in artists, and I've been finding out just how true that is. In fact, we're speaking with another successful musician with a bipolar illness today. Uh, my name is Ben Delacour. I am a musician and, well, I was a musician. Now it's, it's unclear what I am now. And uh, I live in Nashville, Tennessee. Music City. Ben Delacour has led an interesting life, to say the least. His official biography says, After playing New York City dives like CBGB's with his brother a decade before he could legally drink, he had already stuffed himself into a bottle of bourbon and pulled the cork in tight over his head by the time he was 21. There were arrests, homes in tough neighborhoods all over the world, countless false starts as well as stays in psychiatric hospitals and rehabs, as Ben battled with mental health and substance abuse issues. These days, he's a folk rockin' singer-songwriter living in Nashville, Tennessee. You can find out a lot more about him at his website, bendelacour.com, and you can purchase his albums on Bandcamp and iTunes. I first got to know Ben in 2017 when he came to Winnipeg and played a house concert in my living room. That night, I became a huge fan, and Ben and I became fast friends. The next year, he was applying for grant funding to come back to Winnipeg to make an album with our friend Scott Nolan. That happened in 2019 during a February polar vortex when Winnipeg was colder than the North and South Poles. In spite of the cold, or maybe even because of it, Ben and his brother came and stayed with us during the making of that album. That album, called Shadowland, was released in early 2020, and it's brilliant, musically and lyrically. One of my favorite records of the year, for sure. Ben writes some powerful songs that are often dark and disturbing, but always very real and easy to get drawn into. Ben is especially honest and open in this episode. Once again, I gotta warn you that if hearing straightforward talk about mental illness might be difficult for you, I really hope that you'll get help immediately. There are some great resources that might help on the show's website at flywithyourshadow.com. The best way to start your journey to health is always with a doctor. If your doctor doesn't understand or doesn't help, then find another one. Help is possible and very worthwhile. If you have questions, feedback, or just want to talk, connect with me on social media at flywithyourshadow, or you can always email me at flywithyourshadow at gmail.com. Let's dive right into my chat that I had with Ben Delacour, which was recorded in February 2021. Look at all these people How'd we ever end up here I swear to God I'd give my firstborn For one lousy beer Jerry said you wouldn't talk like that 
If they took years away How the hell do you think I wound up in this place All right, so the uncertainty of, uh, of that introduction leads me to wonder kind of what happened in the year. So I like to start out at the beginning of 2020. We all had plans and hopes and dreams. Yeah. Uh, before those got stomped on, what was what was your plan for the year? You had this great record that was going to come out. Yeah. So I assume there were plans in place. Yeah, I mean, you know, back then I was just a crazy kid with a dream, you know. <laughs> Time has not been kind to my once youthful features. Yeah, I, well, yeah, I had, had that record that I really loved that I recorded, as you know, up in Winnipeg when I lived in your basement with my giant Viking brother uh, uh, that I made with Scott Nolan. And uh, honestly, I decided just to go ahead and put it out kind of, well, well, okay, so I'll go back. In February and March, I was on tour in Australia, which is uh, excellent, super fun experience, even though I wasn't doing very well at the time. But um, the whole experience was great. And I... Kind of, I got lucky too that the pandemic only kind of started uh, ramping up the last maybe week that that we were there. So I kind of only missed out on maybe four or five shows, and I had to come back like three days early. So I got up pretty lately, and then came into came home into into lockdown, and then I, I kind of decided to put the record out anyway in May, and I'm really glad I did. I think that. Um, for a lot of reasons, but I think it was honestly a, a good move. And then I figured that if it just dropped without a trace, then I could blame the pandemic. Which <laughs> is the key for me. <laughs> but it didn't. It's It seemed like it got a great reaction. I mean, it's getting yeah. on all kinds of lists, and the reviews seem to be pretty much universally positive. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really uh, grateful for that. I mean... You know, like, you can't put too much stock in external validation because it's like, it's kind of a sinkhole, right? The more stuff that you pour into there, the bigger the sinkhole gets. And then it just swallows everything, including you. And and then, like, I think that goes for both positive and negative external validation, right? So it's like, the good, you can be like, yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. And, and you know, it's a practice, right, of believing that people mean it when they say it, and I think most of the time they do. So it's just kind of good to be grateful and, you know, like be have some grace and say, yeah, thank you, I appreciate it. And, and just, you know, the, the, like the publicist I hired, Heather West, she did just like an amazing job, and I had a really nightmarish experience with the publicist I hired before um, for the last record, or not the, you know, the one before that. So... Yeah, but I had a whole tour booked of the U.S. and Canada. I was actually doing a, a, a whole run of Canada and part of the Western U.S. with uh, Richard Inman, who, you know, you know also. And, I, man, I love that guy. I really think he's a fantastic writer and a really cool human. And we actually talk on the phone all the time. So without the without the opportunity to go tour this record and everything, um how did how did that kind of affect you? I mean, obviously you're you're a guy I'm I'm assuming who makes most of his living by doing shows. Yeah. And it uh I know it's it, it's good for you on a personal level as well to do those shows. So how how did not having that affect you? Um I mean, 
it kind of helped that everybody's in the same boat, you know, so I wasn't like constantly looking sideways at all, you know, friends and enemies who are just out there, you know, playing tons of shows and, you know, it was kind of like, oh, well, we're all in this. And, you know, it's like, what, what can you do? You know, you can only play the card you're dealt. And we were all dealt something of a shitty hand. But I, I feel like through luck and circumstance and also hard work, I was able to kind of do the best I can, could, bluffing, bluffing with like a three high, you know, through through 2020. And I don't know, like it, it I definitely feel like I sold, it's hard to tell, but I sold way more records even without touring this year than I, I normally do at the for the first couple of months. Yeah, I think because like everybody, a wanted to support artists and b they you know because I, I tour quite a lot and I think a lot of people when I put records out there like oh yeah well we'll catch him when he comes through like well you know and I don't I honestly don't care if people stream or buy it you know I like it when they buy it at shows but you know I don't care you know I just want people to listen and I think that the people who complain about Spotify you know like there are all these boobs on Facebook and Twitter who post their Spotify royalties like oh thanks for 30 cents but like it's, it's crazy to me that they all seem to be operating under this assumption that if Spotify didn't exist that they'd be selling thousands of fucking records and they don't even like they play like 20 shows a year you know and it's like like you know like like what do you what did you think was going to happen you know like that just your record would fly off the fucking shelves like you know for the 25 shows you play a year you know I don't know if that's the issue it's just that Spotify makes billions of dollars and you end up getting 30 cents for it like they they make their sure millions on your back and then don't don't yeah. pay much of it back to you like yeah and, and the, you know that's of course a factor but i think that we all bec- we've become so desensitized to corporate greed and just you know that it's just like well at least you know like the way i look at it is is at least we get something tangible from spotify and 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 that is like that we can not only as artists but as people we can discover all kinds of music you know which which Again, it's not without its negatives, you know. Like I'm an I'm an older millennial, so I remember going to uh, Tower Records and stuff when I was a little kid, you know, and and going to like little, you know, like um, non-franchise, non-chain record stores in my neighborhood and talking to like the dudes who work there and you know being like ten years old and then being like, dude, you gotta Black Sabbath, you gotta check this out, you know, or like you ever listen to Slayer, get this record, you know, and, and but I think that like you know, people nowadays, you can, you know, if you do a little, like, that magic is gone, but there's a magic of being able to, like, go on Spotify and stream a record that consists of songs that are found on, like, North African cell phones, you know, that you would never, ever be able to, to find, you know, and, and like, every show I, I play, I feel like people come up and they're like, oh, I saw you were coming through, and I've never heard your music before, but I like the venue, and I stream you on Spotify and I dug it. So I came to the show, you know, so like those people discover you and they come and they pay the ticket price and they, they buy a record or a CD or, or a t-shirt and like they're into your music, they're fans. So did you find that people quickly pivoted to buying stuff online and whereas they wouldn't like, I would assume that most yeah. of the time you sell your records from the stage. I, I would assume that's yeah. the biggest venue to sell them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I have like physical distribution for my records in the U.S., but it's pretty limited, you know. Um, and I feel like, yeah, for sure. Like, I, I, I think that normally people buy the vast majority of my records from the stage, you know. Whereas for this, it was like, 
I mean, obviously it wasn't selling a lot from the stage, but I feel like, you know, it was a lot of people just kind of buying a um, pre-order and ordering, which is great, man. I mean, you know, I'm grateful for anyone who buys it or listens. You know, I'm grateful for people streaming on Spotify. So did you go through a transition where you were like, okay, now what am I going to do to to with my time and to make money? Yeah, I mean, right now I'm deep in credit card debt. <laughs> I... Uh, I um, but I did uh, I, I I weirdly ended up an opportunity kind of just fell on my lap to to sign with a new booking agency during this and and they they do a lot of um they're kind of pivoting to doing a lot of online shows and online festival stuff so that kind of feels like it's nice to have someone working on that end and, and I've been kind of getting more comfortable with doing the the live streams and uh. But yeah, I mean, I think it's a good thing. Like, you know, it's dangerous to define yourself through something with so few tangible, positive uh, feedback mechanisms of, as a, as a, as art. You know, so I think it's you know it's dangerous when you just define yourself as an artist instead of like, okay, I'm a human who makes art. And I think that this year has been great. You know, like I got to spend like a solid, come like you know nine, ten months hanging out with my daughter, like, all the time. You know, I split custody of her with my ex-wife, and when I'm gone, obviously, she picks up all the slack, for which I'm super grateful. But, like, our, our my, my relationship with my daughter has just become incredible, you know? And, like, it's just the best thing in my life, and I feel so grateful for that. And I feel grateful, like, learning to kind of define myself as something more than just a musician. Yeah, because when you're so busy doing it all the time, I guess you don't, take the time to evaluate the other things in your life and pay attention to who you are as, as that musician. Yeah. You get very myopic. And so do you feel, you feel like you're going to come out of this thing sort of feeling stronger and more confident as a result or. Yeah. Like I, I, I kind of redeveloped some very bad habits over the last kind of before pandemic and early on in the pandemic. And it's really hard to break those bad habits when you're touring a lot, you know? And, um, you know, I was able to, to, to get in a situation where I, I mean, it was awful, but where I, you know, you know, like, you know, ended up several times in the, psych ward and stuff is you know we talked about that and but those are like kind of like the um pivotal moments where i was able to be like all right i need to address this man like this is really destroying my life and um so i don't think i would have been able to do that if i was out there playing 100 something shows a year can you talk at all about like if you're comfortable like what what exactly was going on that that led you there and and how you kind of worked out of it? Yeah, I mean, so sure. I, I like had a, had like a gnarly relapse, not on alcohol. I still haven't drank in like two and a half years. But I did the classic kind of addict thing where I was like, oh, well, I convinced myself like, oh, well, my problem is with alcohol. You know, I can do like, you know, benzos and opioids and stuff, and it's fine. You know, like, I can handle that. I'm, you know, and then that just turned into an absolute nightmare. And um, actually kind of was harder. It's harder, you know, I don't think I was ever physically dependent on alcohol. 
you know, like I was just very unhealthy, uh, you know, like I was an alcoholic for sure, but I wasn't the kind of alcoholic that, you know, like when I was in rehab a couple of years ago, the kind of people who, you know, were like, uh, in the, you know, while I was in the detox ward who were, who were like having full on de delirium tremens, seizures, that kind of stuff, you know? So for me, it was like very tough to break the mental cycle and like have to realize that I was self-medicating and that like I was in denial about having some, pretty serious mental health, you know, I, after that, I got diagnosed bipolar, and, um, you know, I'm currently really well medicated for that, and, you know, have developed good, you know, like, I do yoga every day now, I meditate every day, I, I you know, it's, but, um, and, and the kind of realization, you know, I, I kind of stopped taking my meds as I should, and the realization that, like, you know, going into actual withdrawal, is is kind of a terrifying, you know, because you're not only mentally trapped by these drugs, but you're like, oh my god, like, I I'm getting like sick, you know, and that's just kind of like if you already have existing mental health issues, like the the way those co compound each other, it was just absolutely awful, you know, and I was just like, I'm just gonna kill myself, like I can't I can't get free of this, and so I'm very grateful every day that. I had opportunities that a lot of people don't, you know, like when I got out of the booby hatch, they, they, uh, <laughs> they released me into like an intensive outpatient program for like a month and that was super helpful. I'm actually planning to go to school this year for uh, social work, like, so I can help people who are, you know, I want to go into various kind of institutions and talk to people who are in my position. And I think, you know, I know for me, when people talk to me in those kind of places, uh, who've been through what I've been through, it's a lot easier to relate to them and, and hear what they have to say. So hopefully, I, you know, I can help someone who's who was in a position like me, the way that I was lucky enough to be helped. So um, I know that for a lot of people, addictions kind of spiked like crazy during the pandemic. So do you think you got into trouble just because you were bored and didn't know what to do or lonely and isolated or all those things or or no, I mean, I think I'm pretty good at being, like, I feel more lonely usually around people a lot of yeah. the time yeah. than I do on my own, you know? Like, I totally I, which know. I don't, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think you and I have a lot of similarities. Yeah. Um, and, and so that really wasn't a big issue. I mean, the, the two weeks of isolation when I came home were hard because I really wanted to see my daughter. I'd already been away for, like, three, four weeks on the other side of the world. and But, but no, like, I mean, I was already in, in a... I'd already been in that cycle for like a year or more at that point, you know? So like, like I'd had to quit using all those substances when I got to Australia because I didn't want to sneak anything in and get like kicked out of the country. And I had a really hard time finding anything. And like, and, uh, so that's, I was in pretty bad shape then. So like, I really missed an opportunity, you know, like of being all sobered up and stuff for a month and then coming right back down and back into back here and then just like going right back into it. But I don't think, no, I don't think the pandemic made it any harder. In fact, maybe it made it easier because I was able to be more free of obligations, you know, and I could just like focus on that and, and spending time with my daughter. Um, so, so have addictions been a big problem for you for a long time? Oh yeah. I mean, since I was a kid, you know, I mean, I, I don't think that, 
I was like as dependent on those as a teenager, but you know, I would like drop acid and go to school when I was like 14 years old and like was smoking a lot of weed and like would, you know, be out most nights with like my little ratchet friends drinking 40s and getting in, in trouble like you do in a kind of growing up in a big city and, um, you know, but they kind of like, you know, like they say, it's a progressive disease and I feel like I, by the time I was in my early 20s, I kind of acknowledged like, oh shit, I think I have a problem. That was when I started trying to like quit drinking and quit other stuff and it was like the typical alcoholic bullshit like, oh yeah, well I managed to like white knuckle it through 30 days so I'm not an addict and then like on the 31st day I would like chug a whole bottle of whiskey and throw up on myself and it's like, but yeah, I mean it's something that it also runs in my family um, as do like, as does, you know, psychiatric illnesses of, so I kind of realized from a young age, like my brother's sober now too and I think we both kind of got that Although I think that for him it was more like he just got burned out on it as opposed to like was I don't think he was ever in quite that deep, but deep enough. I mean to change his whole life and get sober. So, so do you think uh, like did did all those things contribute to you becoming an addict, or was it mostly just the social thing of hanging out with your friends and having fun, or how to? Uh, I mean, you know, like. No, I mean, yeah, you know, it's the whole question, right, of nature versus nurture. And I think I was always a very sensitive kid. And so I was kind of, like, dedicated to obliterating that part of me from a, from an early age. And, you know, like, I mean, every, like, I feel like this is apparent, you know, when my daughter gets older. Like, I feel like every kid goes through that phase pretty much, right, where they, like, experiment with drugs and drink and, like, go a little bit over the edge. And, like, 90% of those kids pull it back. Like, they're like, yeah, well, that's not really how I'm trying to live my life. And then there's, like, the 10% who just realize, like, they feel so good and so normal when they start using those things that they're just like, I don't think I can live without it. And and those are the people who, you know, whether it's, like, they had a chaotic childhood and they were just very sensitive to it and, and they also had the genes and they also had poor coping mechanisms for, you know, like, it's the same way that, like, you you know, like, you can't quantify pain, you know, like, you can look at, like, look how many times, like, it's such a cliche, like, oh, that so-and-so had everything, like, I can't believe they killed themselves, it's like, well, they didn't take that decision lightly, it's not like they just woke up one morning, like, oh, you know, my shoelace won't stay tied, I'm gonna fucking hang myself, you know, like, those people were obviously the end of their rope. Well, the other thing that I always like to tell people is that, like, us rational people without a mental illness or, or in that situation, we can't make sense of it. Well, wait, are you trying to say that you don't have a mental illness? <laughs> no, I'm I definitely do. Okay, I'm just saying that people who are looking on at that and trying to make sense of, cause we've, I've talked a bunch about suicide and stuff on this show and it's kind of, it's kind of inspired by some people who committed suicide. And then I was trying to make sense of that later on. And then I realized, well, you can't make sense of that because when we're struggling with a mental illness, nothing makes sense. Our, our brains are, are not making sense. Right. So we can't kind of make sense of it after the fact as someone who's lost someone and trying to figure out why. Yeah. There's no way to, you know, I mean, but even if you have experienced those things, I feel like the way that that plays the way that mental illness plays tricks on you is when you're 
in a good place, you kind of have a hard time believing that you ever felt that bad, you know. And so when you see someone kill themselves or do something very harmful, you kind of, even if you are someone who's suffered with mental health issues, you kind of feel like, man, I wish they could have just held out. They would have felt better. But when it's happening to you, it's the same way that when you're in a really bad place, you you not only feel like you'll never feel okay again, but you you retroactively look back on your life and realize, like, I've never had one moment of happiness. You know, like, that was all a lie. Life is worthless. Because... Yeah, it's just the way your brain operates. Yeah, I mean, but the other reason why I, I want to have these conversations on this show is because when you're in when you're in the grips of a mental illness or a situation like that, you f- you feel totally isolated, isolated and alone, and like nobody will understand. You don't go and yeah. talk to people about it because you don't feel like anybody's going to understand or care. So yeah. you know, if if we have these conversations, maybe a maybe somebody feels a little less alone or else maybe somebody else recognizes somebody in their life that might be struggling in that way. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. You got to normalize it, you know, yeah. got to normalize suicide. <laughs> well, there's nothing <laughs> normal about it, but, but we need to, we need to not be so scared to talk about it anymore. Yeah. I've said before, it seems like the last real taboo. You can talk about just about anything else, sex, religion, politics, whatever. But uh, people don't people don't want to talk about mental illness and suicide. And I, I think, think you're right. That's a huge part of the problem, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I think that, um, yeah, and and why that you know the same way. I mean, part of the same uh, delightful cornucopia is you know addiction, like the way that. I mean, I think you guys do a much better job. I think the U.S. is really leading at least leading the Western world in, in denial about addiction and mental health, you know, like I think we have this puritanical hangover, you know, that we can't seem to get out from under. And I think it's super toxic. Like, you know, it's all part of the myth of American exception, exceptionalism, which is like the toxic thing. So can you talk a bit about uh, what those mental health issues looked like or felt like in you? Um, I felt like an empty jar of peanut butter that somebody was scraping out with a butter knife. Were you sort of forced to get help with that? Or did you, did you recognize within yourself that it was time to not feel that uh, way? Or? Man, it was kind of a little of column A, a little of column B. And so what kind of things helped you the most, would you say? I mean, I think like like any of these things, there's uh, especially as addicts, we're looking for like you know, because you're so used to using a substance and and temporarily taking the pain away, even though obviously it causes more pain. Um, that we're always looking for like a one, the key to unlock the cycle and the key to unlock the pain closet, you know. But but really, it was a combination of lots of things, like having. Uh, like medical support network, psychiatric support network, um, working on instilling practices in myself, like, you know, mindfulness and meditation and yoga and, and kind of those kind of things uh, and just the timing lining up. And, and you know, it's, that's, that's why I think treating those things can be so problematic. 
did it become easier once you had the diagnosis of being bipolar or did, did it help you to make sense of any of those things or, or kind of accept it better? Yeah, I think it's always a relief, right? You know how like you hear people talk about cancer and sometimes they're like, oh, it's actually a relief being diagnosed, which sounds kind of crazy, but it's kind of a relief once you put a name to it, um, you kind of take away some of that power that it has over you and you kind of are like, okay, well, I fit into this category and this category is something that happens to, you know, that a lot of people experience, so I'm not alone. And this is also a thing, you know, once you identify it, then you can start to work on, on, you know, models of treatment for it. And you realize that your, your pain is not unique, you know, which is another thing that we all tell ourselves, right? That we have this kind of exquisite pain is unique to us and no one understands and no one could understand. And, and, you know, you, you, you become very self-absorbed as an addict. You know, like, which is why you, there's so many annoying people in sobriety because they just, they remove the substance and they do work, but they're just as self-absorbed as they ever were. And those people are the worst to hang out with. <laughs> yeah. So it's once it's, once it's only, you're only really starting to get better once you realize that you're not the center of the world and, and yeah that you have a, a place in the world and things to do and you need to listen as much as you need to talk and look at yourself i guess yeah the, this uh lady who was tour managing the australian tour i remember walking into you know uh, into this thai food restaurant and just being like man i'm really i'm really not doing well this is awful i feel like everyone is like looking at me and judging me and blah 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 and i feel so like i just want to rip my skin off and she was like dude, no one gives a shit about you in here. Like, these people are living their lives, and she kind of, it was like a eureka moment. She was just like, you know, she'd been sober a long time, and she's like a very inspiration. You know, like, for for every handful of annoying, self-absorbed dimwits that you find in sobriety, there's always one or two people who you kind of feel like you're in a room with a Dalai Lama or something. You know, they have this kind of, like, beatific, transcendent, thing about them you know they've you're actually like, oh. figured it out yeah and they've done the work and they just they're just like you're like holy shit this is like this person is like transcended somehow and she's one of those people and i'm so glad i had her with me in australia and uh she was just like dude it's not all about you like like you know and it was kind of the way she said it was really kind but also really kind of like firm and i kind of was like oh my god you're you're right you know, like these people don't give a shit about me. Like they don't, you know, like, and that's great. You know, the same way as like going back to earlier, the suicide talk, it's like Camus said, right. About the only decision anyone has to really make is whether to kill themselves or not. And then if you don't kill yourself, you just got to accept the absurdity of existence. And that's like actually incredibly freeing. Life means nothing. It's fucking awesome. You know, like you give a meaning, you can do whatever you want. Does it help you to put any of these things in perspective because you're a parent, do you think? Does it does it make it more uh, important or more obvious that you have, that the world doesn't quite revolve around you? Yeah, that is really a gift of being a parent, you know, as I'm sure you've also experienced, like how you're like, I'm not the boring center of my universe anymore. You know, you're, you're like, I mean, like, I still matter. And I matter outside of my relationship with, my daughter but not as much you know like what i really 
Yeah, like it, it absolutely can be super healing, you know, if you're as long as you're not like resentful of your child, you know, um, which some people are. And I feel really bad for those people. I feel even worse for those kids. But but um, it also is why it seems like such a cop out when people have a kid and they're like, well, I guess I'm going to get a job at an insurance company or like blah, blah, blah. Like, and it's like, and then they blame their kids for it. It's like, dude, that's what you, you always, all you really wanted was to do that kind of have that boring life. And it, I mean, maybe it's not boring to you, but if you complain about it and say you had to do it for your kids, like what kind of example are you setting for your kids that you just like have kids because you feel like you should and then you're miserable for the rest of your life. Like that's on you. Uh, I mean, for a lot, for a lot of reasons, I sort of grew up way too early and way too fast and, and, was always, uh, able to look out for myself and just spent a lot of time and energy making sure that I was going to be okay. And then all of a sudden, you know, I had a kid and I realized that I need to worry about you're going to be okay. And that's more important than the drama going on in my head. And suddenly realizing that there's something bigger than you or something, you know, that you have to worry about more kind of changes a lot of that. Yeah, like exactly, and it kind of inspires you almost to like double down on 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 what you love, you know, because you're like, I'm not only doing it for myself now. Yeah, you're you're right about the the other thing that you said about getting the getting the job or whatever. You, we can't. I would imagine you you can't give up touring and being, you know, that guy because that's important to who you are, and that makes you. Uh, sort of more important or more valuable, I guess, to your daughter. Like for me, uh, you know, obviously I don't do that, but, but I go to a lot of shows and, and there were always these times when, when uh, Jeremy would say, well, like, why do you have to go out so often? And, and things like that. And it was like, well, you know, I need to do the things that are important to me and I need to feel a part of this community. And whether you understand it or not, that kind of makes me a better father, a better person. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah, I think that, yeah, you said it better than I could. <laughs> that, that doesn't happen often, so let's savor the moment. Even a broken clock is right twice a day. <laughs> there you go. <sighs> Do you worry about any of these things catching up to her? The the mental health and the addictions and stuff? Yeah, I very, mu- I very much worry about it. But, uh, you know, I, I, I realize that, like, I can only do the day-to-day thing and make her feel secure and loved and seen and, and support her decision. And, you know, like I realized kind of one day that um, like projecting into the future is just projecting into the future. So if I'm going to project into the future, why don't I imagine this beautiful, wonderful, magical life for her? Because like, if that doesn't come true or it does come true, it doesn't change anything. The same way that like if something awful happened to her, me catastrophizing about it now isn't going to change that. All it's going to do is ruin my my peace of mind and probably I'll project it onto her and she'll grow up all anxious and weird. Um, you know, so all I can do is put the framework in place for her and just appreciate every moment that we have together and love her and try to be a good dad stick around yeah and uh i know she's kind of young but certainly with me like i think it's more important for for us to talk to our kids about what's really going on because that certainly never happened to me when i was a kid 
everybody would no. try to hide that stuff and normalize it or just, you know, um, kind of make it, oh, there's nothing to be worried about. Um, but if we're more open about it and say, you know, why we're worried about things or, or what's going on, then I think it, it automatically puts them at an, at an advantage to deal with it if it happens to them. Yeah, and they can talk about it, and it's not like a taboo, or it's not something they feel like they don't want to burden someone with. They feel seen. You're going to school. Um, what's that look like for you? I mean, does that force you to not do as much touring and stuff? Is that, is that something you're looking at replacing the music with, or is it, or you, do you think you can still do both? I mean, I think I'm going to have to do both, you know, like I, music is really like my thing, you know, I, I think, I mean, schooling for now will be online. So, and you know, that's something you can put off, you know, like I don't have to do it all now, you know, or music, I feel like that's what I'm doing. And, and I mean, I feel like I couldn't imagine giving up playing music and I can't imagine like not pursuing it for real. I feel like even, you know, as, as much as it sounds stupid, I think sometimes going to school just to actually learn things as opposed to going to school to get a job is, is probably a, a better experience in a lot of ways. So even the things that you learn and take from that, you can apply to your relationships and, and the people you know without necessarily it being your job. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely correct. So what's going on in the in the music world? Are you writing new songs? Is there a, a, are you able to feel creative at this time? Yeah, I, I I didn't like give myself any pressure to feel creative, and that when I started taking the pressure off myself, I started feeling creative again. You know, I've been um and uh I've been teaching myself piano. You know. Um, and just kind of, I've got most of the new record written. Um, I mean, yeah, I've got way more songs than I could put on it, but I feel like there's a couple, I still need some more. So has it come to the part where you're planning to make a new record already? Is, uh, is that a thought or is it just in the creative phase at this point, like putting together the songs and then we'll figure out what to um, do with A little bit of both it's so hard to tell these days when things are going to start up again and what they're going to look like. I don't know about down there, but we have lots of fears about the venues, how they're going to be and festivals and all that stuff, how they can weather this storm and what it's going to look like when it's done. You're just, you're just kind of, it sounds like you're just kind of planning as if we can go back to what, what we had before. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I feel like this is a good opportunity to practice just acceptance of uncertainty. You know, like however it looks, people are going to play music. People are going to come out to hear music, and and will you know? I mean, someone like Lightning Hopkins or Robert Johnson could jump on a train in Jim in the Jim Crow South and play shows where there's always a chance of some awful hate crime being committed on them or being lynched or being run out of town. I'm pretty sure that we can figure out some white sad dude with a guitar can figure out how to play some shows. <laughs> yeah, that's, that sounds, that sounds good. It sounds like, sounds like you got the, the right attitude about it. And, uh, uh, I wish you nothing but, but success with that for sure. This has been, this has been really great. And, uh, 
I really appreciate you sh- sharing so much and and being so uh, so open and and willing to talk about whatever. Yeah, I appreciate you doing this uh, podcast, you know, and helping to normalize normalize being crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I you know I think we're all I think everybody's crazy. Yes, uh, but uh, but our our own brand of uh, craziness, I guess, needs to. Uh, needs needs to seem a little bit more maybe not normal but more common i suppose yeah i think so yeah there's a, there's enough of us out there that it's uh it's it's not so easy to ignore yeah i think it, yeah i think it's absolutely yeah you said it better than i could Ben is obviously a talented, hilarious, and charming guy. I really appreciated knowing more about his struggles. Most people who meet him or Nikki Meda or me for that matter wouldn't suspect that we're fighting a mental illness that makes everything a lot more difficult. We become masters of disguise because often our greatest fear is that others will find out that we're having a hard time. It's especially difficult And if you ask me, especially impressive, because a lot of people like Nikki and Ben work so hard and are so good at what they do, they manage to achieve great success and acclaim in spite of a difficult illness that presents a lot of challenges and dangers. And I think it's even more impressive that someone as successful as they are is willing to talk about their conditions so honestly. I hope that these conversations offer a bit of hope for anyone who might be struggling You should know that you can achieve great things with a mental illness and you can control it and live a great life. If you aren't battling a mental illness, consider yourself lucky, but it's highly likely that you know someone who is. It's really important to check in and look out for anyone you know who might be going through a hard time. Don't wait for them to call you. And it's important in general just to show compassion and understanding as much as you can. This show is and always will be absolutely free. It won't contain ads or pleas for money in any way. If you do want to support the show, please consider telling someone about it to help spread the word. Direct recommendations or even a quick share on social media could really help and would be greatly appreciated. I really hope you might consider helping Ben pay off some of that credit card debt by buying some of his albums or his t-shirts at his website, bendelacour.com or on Bandcamp. There are links to his website and his music and places you can buy it at our website, flywithyourshadow.com. Please follow Fly With Your Shadow on social media, subscribe to updates on the website at flywithyourshadow.com or follow the show on your favorite podcast provider like Spotify, Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music or wherever you get your music and podcasts. I thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me again on the next episode of Fly With Your Shadow.